Bella for On Reading. Our reasons for reading are as varied as our personalities. The On Reading podcast talks to people about the books they've loved in their life and the reasons why. Hello and welcome to the On Reading podcast. My guest today is Linda Sargent. Hello, Linda. Hi, Bella. Now, Linda, we've been friends for a long time now and we met when we first started working together and you were a reader at the children's publisher David Fickling Books. Your early career as a teacher and then a writer, as well as working in the creative reminiscence field, means that you've always been around narrative and used narrative and reading in your work. Is this something, is story something that has always been central to your life and your work? Absolutely. Um, Not just books, but uh, thinking back, having had to think about all of this, um, the games I used to make up as a child and the imaginary games and the sort of bossiness mm. of bossing the other children on the farm and <laughs> creating um, lots of imaginary games, circuses, westerns, often based on um, television programmes, but then we went off on our own track, was all about that, really. Mm. And they, they sprang, I suppose they sprang out of television, comics and books, those ideas, and wanted to translate them into my everyday life and make it more... Um, colourful. Mm. I was born in 1949, so my early memories are probably going to be from really ar- around the the age of eight, realistically. Mm. I can remember before that, and I can remember infant school, but they're very sort of shadowy memories, and I think when I think about it, eight is the, is the time that I can remember walking to the library on my own and all those sorts of things, really. And before that, can you remember the process of learning to read? I can, because um, and, and that was at uh, a primary school in, uh, in a village in Kent, Chillum, and it, a lot of emphasis was put on reading, um, even though we were all children from very rural backgrounds, so you might say peasant stories. Um, but learning to read was a key to our education and um, I definitely remember that the punishments in infant schools sprang from getting stuck or not being able to read and I remember the classroom was full of pictures from the, the, read it, the reader book that we were learning to read mm. with which was was old lob and that's one we'll come and talk about, yeah, that's about, later. about a bit later and did you find it easy to read do you remember the process as being something that you found easy or was it a difficult one I do you know I can't remember whether I found it easy or difficult all I know is I wanted to do it have that ability and to write as well mm. I wanted to write and that sort of desire is that then to tell a story, to, to write a story, to read a story. It's, where does it spring from? I don't know where it sprang from. I think it was, um, it's a kind of curiosity about trying to place oneself in the world. So you appear in the world as a person and mm. it's almost magic, isn't it? Where have you come from? Mm. And so what does it all mean? So is there a way of somehow tying what you're feeling to the concrete world Mm. and that's what stories and writing is Um, I think that's what I was trying to do as a child of course it's easy to analyse as an adult obviously I wasn't analysing it like that 
as a child. It was just something I really wanted to do. And had your parents told you stories? Were they telling you stories or reading to you as a young? My mother used to read to me. She would often read to me during thunderstorms because she was frightened of thunderstorms. <laughs> uh, she would read to me anyway. If there was a storm, I'd get quite excited because I'd think, <laughs> oh, good, Mum's going to have me on her lap and we're going to be reading. And we shared a lot of uh, stories like that. Mm. But they were, you know, they were farm workers, so they didn't have a lot of time for reading. But they told stories and they sang songs. Because uh, it's not just about books, is it? It's no. about all those, all those stories of, um, of life. And other ways of telling stories. And other ways of telling stories, yes. yes. Photographs and, and, and pictures and the radio, of course, was, mm. was important at that time. Most of my reading came from a little library. Uh, there was a room given over to the library, so it wasn't actually even a library, it was just a room with boxes of books and then you could go and rifle through and borrow books. And so I had to walk about, I don't know, a mile or something mm -hmm. like that across the fields um, and it was just wonderful, the idea of walking up to this library rifling through the box of books and coming back with an armful of books across the fields. That sounds like bliss, doesn't it? It sounds really? like bliss. And, and maybe it was in some ways, but it was also quite hard as well, really, because mm. there was no real guidance. I don't even know if the person running it was actually a librarian. They probably weren't. Mm. Uh, but it was probably somebody who liked books. So, yeah, you know. you know, from a young child. Mm. Um, did your reading process change? Did you fall out of reading at any point? Or did you, have you always been a continual reader? I've always been a continual reader, and I think if I hadn't got arthritis when I was 12, 11, 12, maybe I would have fallen out at that stage mm. that's, that is not uncommon when you're a teenager and you're, and you're more interested in other things. But then reading became a real solace because I, my, act, my physical activity, and I've always been a very physically active child, was then so restricted that reading was something that, could take me away from, from from that sort of huge mm. shock of not being able to do all those things mm. anymore. And I never really believed believe that I wouldn't do them anymore. In fact, I can remember, um, <laughs> strangely, g going into hospital with this disease and thinking, when I come out, I'll be cured, because that's what you do. You, you go into hospital, that's what... <laughs> Come on, guys, this is a deal, isn't it? And, um, and I can also remember that, again, it was a story that I used to think, oh, I'm just like the Little Mermaid, that it's really painful to walk, but um, that pain will go. Uh, and I used to practice walking on tiptoe when I came out of hospital to see whether how painful it was going to be and whether, I, you know, the Little mm -hmm. Mermaid story was going to have any real play in my in my own story. So there again, it was always finding a story that fitted my... That reflected what was going on. Yeah. yeah. And when I went into hospital, I regressed with my reading and I went back to all the Enid Blyton Famous Five and Secret Seven books. Hospital uh, sent me back into those comfort, that comfort reading, mm. which was really sustaining. I can remember they all lined up on the window of the room I was in, in the children's hospital. Oh, and how long were you in hospital um, at the beginning? No, I don't think it was that long, actually. I think it was about three weeks. Right. Oh, um, still, that's... Some yeah, time, it's quite a long it? time, yeah. Uh, and then when you came out and um, sort of had to adjust to yeah. a different life, did you, you found reading sustained you? Yes. Yes, because, well, 
I, I think probably most people who are readers find that reading gives them entry to other worlds that they may never experience in reality. And so for somebody with a physical disability, that's even more so. Mm. There were things that were being described, and I don't ever remember thinking, oh, I'm never going to be able to do that, I can't read about it. I always found that it was a very enlarging sort of experience because um, this vicarious experience of the world uh, was something I learned to um, be sustained by, mm. and still am, actually. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't find the envy that overtakes me thinking, I can't do that, I can't be this, or, you know, I can't watch tennis and think, I'm never going to play tennis. Mm. I, I find similar threads in those experiences that other people are having and translate them into things that I need. So looking around your room, as you said earlier, you are in a house that is absolutely stuffed full of books yes. everywhere. Um, do you feel that you always have to finish books when you start them? No. Good. <laughs> um, how do you choose what you're going to read next? I certainly listen to programmes and quite often when I'm working, as we both know, I read for a living at the moment, for my, for my break... I'll listen to a good read. <laughs> well, that's a bit of a busman's holiday. But it also gives one a, t a reflection because you're hearing other people talking about other books and it can help you to reflect on what you've been reading. Mm. Just, I look at, you know, one minute I'm reading um, a children's book by some American writer, Cynthia Voigt, I noticed. And then mm. the next book I'm reading is of Human Bondage by Somerset Maugham. Mm. So <laughs> if there's any... It's eclectic. It's eclectic. <laughs> it's just... Uh, um, and do you read books? Yes, I do. Some of it's comfort reading. So when I'm unwell or have a flare-up or anything that's connected with the disease, I'll often go back to Rosemary Sutcliffe, actually, oh, really? which is kind of interesting because she had rheumatoid arthritis, which oh. I didn't know when I was first reading her. Mm. And when I discovered that, I just felt, well, honestly, <laughs> that's quite something. Um, she was uh, somebody who suffered from rheumatoid arthritis and... Uh, was was more disabled. I'm be, I'm looking a bit more like her now because I'm becoming more more sort of bent by it. But you know the treatments then weren't as um, weren't the same when she mm. first was diagnosed. So her books, you know, I often go back and read *The Eagle of the Ninth*, *The Sword of Sunset*, *The Lantern Bearers*. All those books which you know she creates mm. such a strong, vivid world. And, and of course, it's another world that is very different from mine, but it's also full of ch physical challenges yeah. as well. Yeah. The first thing you need, as we both know, and the most important thing in stories, is to find the characters that you... And the setting. And the setting. Characters and setting and, and what their passion is that you then can share. Yeah. Um, and once you've got that, you could, the, the writer can take you more or less anywhere. Yeah, I reckon. absolutely. So tell me about the first book. Um, it's Old Lob and by Elsie Hall Grassum. Yes. There's a farm and there's a shepherd who is Old Lob. And he's got a, a dog, called, a, a collie called Mr Dan. I mean, I couldn't remember all this. I had to look some of this up. And then there's a, a chick called Percy the Bad Chick, Grump the Goat. <laughs> this was the reading scheme in the 50s in this primary school in Kent. And I'm very thankful that I was taught to read using that and not the ghastly anodyne. Sorry, we'll probably be sued. Um, Janet and John. <laughs> We're very localised. I think they were sort of things, you know, like Percy the Bad Chick being naughty and then 
the having to be got out of trouble, and old lob was the kind of calming factor. Mm. But they were small adventures, small sort of domestic adventures set in this rural farm mm. setting. But they're very looking at what I can see of them because I haven't got them, but is that they look a bit like the layout of, um, of Rupert books. So you've got the kind of comic bit and the, the speech, but you've also got some text. Mm. So it's quite a good, it's an interesting way of teaching people to read. So you've got the pictures, you've got the cards with, you know, this is Old Lob, this is Dan, Mr Dan the Dog, this is Percy the Badger, all of that. So that you're, you're learning how to read because you want to know about those characters. Mm. I remember getting stuck on a book which was about a hedgehog and a tortoise. Um, <laughs> is there a particular word? Yes, there was a particular you. word that stumped me. And my teacher thought I was being naughty. And she, you know, she did punish me for, for getting what stuck. What did she, how did she punish you? Well, I was made to stand in the corner. Um, Yet you still remember these books with fondness. Yeah, and I, st- I wasn't put off reading. It's amazing, mm. isn't it? Of course, one wants to please as a child as well. So there was all that. And you want to be included. Mm. Um, and the second book you've chosen is um, a personal favourite of mine as well <laughs> when I was a child, which is The Swish of the Curtain yes. by Pamela Brown, which I absolutely loved when I was growing up. Yeah. So tell me about this. When did you read it and what did it mean to you? Well, I think I must have been about eight. There's a whole series, isn't there? Did you read the, the other, the no, rest I of them? I, I think there's a whole book. Well, uh, I think I must have read more of them. Yeah. But it's the experience of reading it and then rereading it and finding it's quite sexist actually and classist mm. in many ways because when she wrote she was only 14 when she wrote it which I was amazed mm. at no they're all kind of fairly middle class children living in a town I just really identified mm. with it but they all seem like children that wouldn't necessarily be part of my circle mm. but that didn't matter no so I think it's something about the universality of that story and you get past all that other all those other all that other stuff and some of the sort of slightly over, you know, for these days would be overwriting in some ways. Yes. But um, on the other hand, never mind, it was a jolly good story, mm. wasn't it? My dad, in, during hop picking, was a hop dryer in charge of the Oast House and he used to have to sleep there along with the other men. It's been weekends, I suppose, or perhaps the early, the end of the summer holidays, going into the bunk room and lying on my dad's bunk with a book and it was this book that I vividly remember, and reading about these children setting up their own theatre in this wonderful sort of comfortable setting of the, the hops being dried, the mm. noise, the hum, and the, smell. and the smell, and the activity of the men as they were doing their, their various tasks associating with drying the hops and pressing them and doing you know, all that went with it. Lying on this bed and, and, and feeling this is my dad's bunk and this... And, you know, these uh, open tins of condensed milk on this sort of dusty table and the men's mugs. And somehow it didn't seem that far removed. It's most most bizarre, isn't it? You've well, just if... painted the most wonderful picture. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's just, I can see and smell it almost. It's it's, uh, yeah, I went back a few years ago and as they were converting this host house to houses, uh, but they hadn't finished and just walking inside... And it wasn't hot so much, it was some other smell and the cobbled floor, the sort of brick floor. I walked in and, and it was just like, right, I'm right back there. And it was definitely book reading in that bunk room, mm. although that had, that had gone, but just incredible. 
So your third book, Linda, is the diary of Anne Frank. Yes. Well, it's probably such a... Um, it's almost like a cliché choice. I remember, again, this was another oast house, another farm, um, reading the, di- the diary of Anne Frank in an oast house. That's probably a good now, place. that is an extraordinary place. <laughs> well, who'd have thought it? Yeah, yes. I, but I do remember that's where I was reading it. Again, it's this limitation of physical activity, although obviously I was better then than I am now. But, you know, I spent more time than perhaps some children would finding somewhere comfortable to to read. And I remember reading the diary of Anne Frank. And then I started a diary, as I'm sure so many children who read it did, thinking, oh, gosh, amazing. And, and being obviously captured by the extraordinary resilience of this and honesty, it seems, of that story. Uh, it encourages similar honesty, I think, when you read it, the mm. sort of the selfishness and the petty things that one is concerned with, even in the midst mm. of all this horror. Um, I don't yes, tell me about your next book. Yes, An Experiment in Education by Sybil Marshall. I was studying economic history <laughs> at the University of Sussex. She was, she was a teacher, a lecturer at Sussex at oh, the time right. in education. I saw this lecture was on and it was called Images of Childhood. I really liked the sound of that. And I went along to it and was completely captivated. She had, in the book, she, she is describing her experience of teaching in a Fenland school in 1948-49. And she was the only teacher from the 5 to 11-year-olds. And again, it was a very rural school. So I very much love the idea of oh it's a school a bit like the one Mm. I went to and not only is it a story of her year there and of the children she encountered but also of the methods she was using she Mm. used a very thematic method so she chose I think Beethoven's pastoral symphony and then everything um she extrapolated from that into maths geography music art everything so she used it as a basis for teaching these children again very sort of rural from a rural mm. background may never and of all ages weren't they of a all real age, mix of a real mix of children kids. and yeah. ages and characters yeah and i was just completely captivated by this mm. because she absolutely brought to life through her stories how uh, important storytelling in, in teaching is so imbo- embedded really yeah. if you're going to be a good teacher you need to be a good storyteller yeah. and then did that inspire you to do PGCE? It did really. I mean, that really... Was that the moment? Yeah, I think it was a turning point. That was the one that that kind of cemented what what my interests were Mm. and what what something that was going to just give me a a passion. Um, And I've gone back and back to that book and I've used those examples, not just with kids in primary schools, because she's so... (laughs) She's so explicit and yet so creative in her telling that you can follow the example of some of her lesson plans, if you like. It sounds a bit cold, but they weren't like that, no. if you see. They work. Yeah, yeah. They absolutely work. And not only that, they work with adults as well, because I've used similar patterns in adult education. An experiment in education is the one book I've got I would never lend. No. And, well, perhaps you could lend it to Michael Gove, or even... Uh, <laughs> I could send him a copy, I suppose. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he'd read it. Yes, that would be good. Change the They should direction. all be made to read that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, they should all be made to but read But she's it. a rebel as well. That's what I really liked 
uh, in her tone was she she's pushing the bar- you know obviously there were there wasn't the curriculum like there is now no. but there were still people making sure that obviously children yeah. were taught in the right way and but she was able to do it her own way and experiment as as the title yeah. says and succeed yeah. and have the evidence there that yeah. she was succeeding it was wonderful yeah, it's just fr- the freedom which yeah. teachers just simply obviously don't have these days no. And I don't see why, just because it was simpler, as people might say, simpler times, but it wasn't in a way, because, you know, the war had only been over for four or five years. So they were quite complicated mm. times, actually, emotionally for this country, mm. I imagine. You know, I'll pick it up and read it now and get mm. caught up in mm. it, because it's like any good storybook. You just find yourself wanting to read more. Anyway, so there you go. That's the An part. inspirational book. Yeah, yeah an really. inspirational book that's got a lot to answer mm. for. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Linda loose on the world. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, definitely. So on to your this is your fifth book. Yeah. Um it's The Great Gatsby by yes. Scott Fitzgerald. And what was it about this book that yeah, so I much to you? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. It's just wonderful writing. I mean it is the I say this word advisedly, it's the most poetic writing. Um but uh I think I've been reading Keats as well, and there's quite a lot of Keatsian stuff in The Great Gatsby, I think. I was, it was one of the first books that I was teaching as an English teacher at Rickmansworth School, and a friend of mine, still a friend now, she, it was her first teaching job, it was my second, I'd taught a bit before filling in for somebody. Um, and, but we both were teaching The Great Gatsby, and we both became friends immediately, although we're different in many ways. But there's such a big dream in that book it's all about dreaming and striving for something that's beyond the everyday I mean that's what Paul Gatsby does and he's Mm. it's kind of based on a lie but at the same time it's really for me it was a story about the 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 searching for a better place if that makes Mm. sense I mean because you know Nick I, I love Nick the narrator because he seemed to I really identified with him, and he's the kind of outsider, the writer, um, who's observing this, this huge myth that Gatsby surrounds himself with, and and the, and the myth of the love that he mm. feels for this this woman, who you you can see straight away is just why is why is he so lovely? Mm. Obviously, because an she's ideal. not real; she's yes. an ideal, yeah. and it's it's the story of the foundation of America as well, in the sense that. People always searching for something, and I guess it strikes a chord in the, the sense that we're all kind of searching for mm. something we don't quite know what it is, but it's it's always just over there. And for me, Fitzgerald really explores that so effectively mm. in that book. That there's there's something a bit unreachable, but if we could find it, then we would be utterly happy. But we never can find it because it's always slightly out of reach and. In fact, in our finding, if we're too obsessed by it, then it can destroy us. Yeah. Um, I mean, and the retelling of history, isn't it? It's the retelling of history, yeah. I mean, the, and the how damaging that is. Yeah, be. this this, uh, this manufactured um, ideal that he, uh, the view that he has, and the sort of damage it does to the narrator mm. as well. He's quite damaged by it, I think. And I found that rather sad. And and did this resonate with you for any particular reason that you can think of at that particular moment in your life? I was I had married, sort of in my mid twenties, and I think by that time I was 
thinking maybe I shouldn't have done. Um, and and this was and in a way the book slightly brought that into sharper mm. focus. Maybe mistakenly. Well, no, it wasn't a mistake. Um, and you know, like but it, it illuminated it illuminated you, things it, to me. Yeah, the thing about the Great Gatsby, from a personal point of view, is that it provided me with a a chance to reflect on my life as it was at that moment and to make changes mm. out of out of that reflection because of what it the explicit um, kind of obsession dreaming hopefulness of the, of the book really and the the big the big themes condensed into the small relationships and your sixth book which is a wonderful uh, choice is a picture book yes. and um, tell me why you've chosen this it's Wilfred Gordon Macdonald Partridge yeah. by Mem Fox and illustrated by Ju- Julie, Julie Vivas yeah uh, well I, I was working in adult education because I had already been involved previously with arts organisations and the value of using arts and theatre um, in the disability field and they were doing a project called Arts Age which was working with older people using the arts so it was, it was giving older people access to the arts which may have been denied to them so that was the kind mm-hmm. of remit and they, they employed a wonderful woman uh, to come in and do that and I was there sort of aiding and abetting and through that I met somebody who's now become a really strong and firm friend called Jocelyn Goddard and she gave me that book and said Linda I think you should you should have a copy of this book and she gave me Wilfred Gordon MacDonald Partridge because it, it completely sums up the value of uh, stories or anything to prompt and enable people to remember, much as we're doing now with books. Mm. I mean, it's the same thing, really. And Wilfred Gordon MacDonald Partridge, as, as you've seen, it's the most beautifully illustrated book, and it's about this little boy who hears about an old lady who's lost her memory, you know, the way that adults, children overhear adults speaking, it's so wonderful. The great eavesdroppers of the world yeah. of children, aren't they? And the, um, and then, of course, he takes it so literally that a child loses something. It means he can't find his teddy bear or his toy rabbit or whatever. And so he thinks, well, a memory must be something you can find, I mm. suppose. Mm. And then, of course, asks all these older people and they come up with what a memory is. And, of course, it's different for so many, for most people. They'll say a memory is this or a memory is that. And he then collects a load of objects together and goes to this, this, uh, this lady. Mm. So it absolutely epitomised what we were trying to do in the work. Uh, it's the most beautifully told book as well. It's very moving. And finally, your last choice, Linda, is yeah. The Diviners by Margaret Lawrence, yes. uh, a Canadian writer. Yeah. I had read others of her books because there's a whole series set in this fictional, but obviously based in a real town in Canada. It, it was given to me by an old friend soon after my mother died. You can see inside the copy it says... Um, well, it's to both of us, actually, to, to me and to Andy, uh, a distraction, um, which was a lovely present. Mm. It's a story of the divine. The divining is both water divining, there's a water diviner in it. There's also this writer who's writing a book, trying to, trying to write a book and having somehow lost that spark. And so she's trying to find it again in a way that you might try and find. So that's the analogy in the book. Mm. And she's also trying to establish a relationship with her 
grown-up daughter, which has become very tricksy. Her parents died and she was fostered, and it's about her re-examining her relationship with her foster parents. There's, there's a lot in mm. there that kind of resonates. Mm. It's a very uh, appropriate book for somebody to give you after the death of a parent. Yeah. I mean, and enabling one to process this huge event that's mm. just happened. And I, I noticed I was looking at my book diary that I, I wrote it was a book that I didn't want to I didn't want it to end. So that's always a good sign yes, of the book, isn't absolutely. it? There's a lot about memory in there as well, you know, the un, unreliability of memory. Mm. Um, and then sorting out why those memories are unreliable and then perhaps trying to untangle what was actually real. Mm. So oh, yeah, that was wonderful. my final choice i mean there are so many but, i know, know and we've touched upon so finally linda what is it that reading means to you today a means of exploration um understanding making trying to make sense of life <laughs> the universe and everything a comfort quite a lot of the time i might be <clears throat> experiencing pain and it's certainly a good book, just completely removes that. Mm. Assuming I'm in a comfortable place. Um, you need to recreate your bed in the house. <laughs> yes, that's right, <laughs> exactly right. That's a good idea. Um, and it's a sort of transcendence, you know, that religion has, uh, has provided for people in the past. And for mm. me, it's a transcendence from beyond the everyday into something else, but also kind of reaffirmation at the moment this story's told from the point of view of a gorilla well i'm never going to be a gorilla well i suppose i might be if there's reincarnation but um <laughs> of course what it's doing is is giving one all those experiences and um and reflections that we all experience mm. as human beings but um so you know being an outsider how to cope with being an outsider and we're all outsiders we're all on our own aren't we is that Simon and Garfunkel's song? I am a rock, I am an island. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. And you think, yeah, actually. And it sounds like a barrier, but actually it's a liberation. I think it's a liberation. That's what reading is. It's a liberation. The On Reading Podcast is produced by Will, Clementine and Bella. For more information about the podcast, our guests and the books we've talked about, please visit onreading.co.uk.